if you want to look out at the universe, you're going to find some weird objects that maybe you didn't anticipate would be out there. You knew there was going to be light from stars, but did you know that there was going to be light coming to you from these collapsed cores of these massive stars that died long ago, and yet their remnants still exist in the universe. The most massive stars, when they run out of their nuclear fuel, the cores of these stars will collapse. In the most massive cases, they might form black holes, but in less massive cases, they're going to lead to a collapsed core made mostly over 90% of pure neutrons. These neutron stars will spin, they will have protons, neutrons, and electrons living on their surface, and they will generate their own magnetic fields. This not only will cause the emission of light, but it's going to imprint some fantastic and interesting properties onto the light that both leaves these objects known as either neutron stars or if we see them pulsing as pulsars, but it will also affect the light that simply passes through those environments. Find out what we know about them and where we're headed with our research on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Imagine taking an object more massive than our sun and compressing it so severely that it's denser than an atomic nucleus. You would get an object that's maybe only 11 or 12 kilometers in diameter, but that has the mass of something even larger than our sun. These objects are the densest collection of matter in the universe that haven't collapsed to a singularity or a black hole. They're known as neutron stars, and to help us unravel their mysteries and see what they can teach us about the universe, I'm so pleased to welcome astronomer, PhD candidate, and pulsar specialist, Haley Wall. Haley, I'm so happy to have you here and welcome to the show. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks so much for having me. So I have to ask, have pulsars always been these objects that have just fascinated you like no other? Or has there been something that happened relatively recently for you that made you just sit up and take notice of these objects and say, this is what I have to get into? Yeah, so I started undergrad at the University of Vermont and knew that I wanted to do astronomy research. And there was one astronomer there. It was Joanna Rankin, Dr. Joanna Rankin at the time. And she studied pulsars. So I started looking into pulsars a little bit, but you know, if I was going to do astronomy research, it would be in pulsars. So I started that, you know, started doing some some looking into, you know, what a pulsar is, kind of pulsar characteristics, and discovered these, you know, really cool neutron stars. And so as I got further and further into the research, I kind of fell in love with pulsars and I fell in love with the weird things that they do, which we'll probably get into later, but they're just these super extreme stars where ridiculous things happen. They have super strong magnetic fields and, you know, they do really weird things. And so that kind of captivated me. And I went into grad school knowing that I wanted to continue with these super weird stars and just really find out what they were all about. 
You know, and and to me, uh, that makes you, well, it definitely puts you in the minority of graduate students. Most of the grad students that I have experience with, um, you know, back when I was a grad student, when I was a professor, uh, and people that I've just met, you know, at various times in my life, most graduate students don't know what exactly they want to specialize in when they're applying to graduate school. Normally, this seems like a thing that students figure out uh, during their first year or two or three in graduate school. Uh, but I was one of those rare people who knew what I wanted to do when I was applying to graduate school, and it sounds like you were too. Do you have any advice, because you're, you're close to your PhD, you're a PhD candidate, you've passed all your qualifying and oral exams, um, you're, you're on your path right now. Do you have any advice that you would give either to young or incoming graduate students who either do or maybe haven't yet found what it is they'd like to specialize? in? Yeah, absolutely. So I came in having this gigantic background in pulsars, you know, knew exactly who I wanted to work with and applied to West Virginia University for pulsars specifically. And I actually started off the summer before my first year doing a little bit of research with fast radio bursts. And so I started doing the research and knew that I wasn't getting you know super excited about it. And I remember that passion that I had for pulsars. And, you know, just, I guess my advice is to not be afraid to, to really go for what you're passionate about. You know, I found myself looking at that research and, you know, trying to get myself to do research and wasn't happy with it. But once I told the professor who was completely understanding about it, uh, once I told her, she completely understood. She's like, you know, do what you're passionate about because you're going to be doing that for, you know, four or five years. And so, that's definitely my my advice to incoming graduate students. You know, if you want to, if you know what you want to do, great, but don't be afraid to explore outside of your your main area. And to graduate students who don't know what they want to do, just try things. You know, nobody's going to be mad if you start with something and then kind of go in another direction because they want to find what you know. They want you to find what you're passionate about. Yeah, and I would say if you find someone who is going to give you some grief over, you know, rejecting them or not falling in love with the research the way they fell in love with their research, that's that's not your issue. That's their personal issue, uh, exactly. you know, that they have to deal with. Because for you, um, one of the things I, I think is really important about whatever it is you choose to study is realizing that there are really two parts of it that I think you have to be passionate about both parts. One of them is that big picture thing, is that big picture of what am I studying? What am I researching? What am I working towards? What are sort of these big questions and these holy grail problems? that I'm working towards, you know, getting the answer to, that me and the community, what are these big questions that we all want to know? But there's also this aspect that you alluded to of this day-to-day -day work that you're doing, of what it's like when you're actually, like, going in there and you're working on your code or you're collecting data or you're preparing observing runs or you're working on an instrument or you're, um, you know, analyzing your data, whatever it is. Uh, these are the day-to-day -day things that make up the majority of the work that you're actually going to be doing. And I think if you 
don't enjoy both the day-to-day, here's what I'm actively doing, here's what I'm working on, and you also don't enjoy that that big prize if you aren't motivated by that big thing that you're working towards, um, I think you're going to have a much rougher go of things than someone who does have both of those things in place. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I get to the point with my research where I'll, you know, write a code or do some analyses and I'm really excited to find out, you know, what physically is this, uh, is everything telling me, you know, what am I going to find out about the star? And so that, you know, having that excitement and being excited for the results really makes, you know, the day to day, you know, code writing and paper writing, it really makes it all worth it because you're, you're finding out really cool scientific, scientific things. And to look a little bit deeper at what you're at what you're working on one of the things you know when i first learned about pulsars when i first learned about neutron stars in general i was uh i was a little bit <clears throat> about them because i was like you neutron stars out there you are just failed black holes you are <laughs> black holes that didn't quite make it and because you didn't make it this is what you're stuck with and all of that changed for me when i started learning about this class of pulsars called millisecond pulsars that um, for a while there was this back and forth between atomic clocks and pulsars as to which one was the most accurate device for timekeeping in the universe. Was it these atomic clocks that we could, you know, just make more and more precise and cool down to lower temperatures and uh, stimulate these atomic or even possibly nuclear transitions between states uh, and measure the passage of time like that? Or would we be better served by looking at these extremely regular astronomical objects that are rotating on their axis and every time they complete one rotation uh this sort of like lighthouse beam passes by our eyes and whether it's in the radio frequency which most pulsars are or whether they occur in some different frequency of light we get these extremely regular pulses from these stars that are actually rotating from these stellar corpses that are rotating at a significant fraction of the speed of light and it was when i started learning about that that i realized what a rich and wonderful astrophysical laboratory these pulsars were providing that in in some ways, we can't generate anything on Earth that competes with them. Exactly. Yeah. Millisecond pulsars are crazy. They can spin up to, I think, like 700 times a second. I like to think of pulsars in general as taking something, the mass of the sun, crushing it into the size of a small city and spinning it as fast as a kitchen blender. So with those really extreme conditions, you're going to get some crazy stuff happening. I think I think the one that spins at I think its record is 766 times a second and I think based on the size of the pulsar uh, which we learned recently from the nicer mission we learned mm-hmm. how big pulsars and neutron stars are and they're they're only between about 10 and 15 kilometers across um, which is crazy to me um, but that means that some of these neutron stars are spinning at like, around two-thirds the speed of light at their surfaces, which 
um, you know, is one of the most crazy examples of conservation of angular momentum that I can think of. I always think of conservation of angular momentum as a figure skater getting near the end of their program where, you know, they'll do their camel spin or, you know, they'll do the one where they, uh, where they, they stick their leg out uh, down near the ice uh, and then they'll bring their arms and their legs in near the center of their body and you'll see them just speed up and speed up and speed up because there's this relationship in physics uh, between something's moment of inertia which is how far most of its mass is from its center uh, versus its angular velocity or how long it takes to rotate one revolution on its axis. So the more and more you bring your mass in towards your center, the faster and faster, right, the more revolutions per minute or second or whatever you want to quantify it as you're going to have. And if you take something that was the size of a star like our sun and you compress that mass down to being an extremely small volume, very close to the central axis of uh, very close to the central axis of rotation, you're going to discover pretty quickly that your angular velocity, the speed at which you rotate, just goes up and up and up. And that really provides the opportunity for us to study matter under extreme states and conditions that even in our best laboratories on Earth, we can't reach. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with angular momentum in terms of, you know, like the figure skater um, taking her arms in, you can really see this in the creation of, of millisecond pulsars. So there are two different types of pulsars. There's these regular canonical pulsars that were created in a supernova. And then you have these millisecond pulsars, which, which are almost like a second generation pulsar. So when a pulsar emits radio radiation or, you know, whatever radiation it does, it will spin down. So it will lose energy because it's been giving off all of this radiation. So it will do what's called spin down. So it'll just lose energy. But if a pulsar has a companion, then the, the pulsar can accrete mass off of this companion star and start to quote, spin it up. So by pulling the material in, it'll spin faster and faster and faster. And so that's how you get these really fast spinning pulsars is exactly because of angular momentum. And a lot of these millisecond pulsars, um, what we've detected is they actually do have binary companions. And in many of these cases, their binary companion is another neutron star. And once in a while, you'll get a system where both of the neutron stars are actually aligned with us, where we can see both neutron stars pulsing. And I know of at least one instance where we saw a binary system where one neutron star is pulsing and we can always see that, and the other one pulsed for a while and then we couldn't see the pulsing and then we could again. Uh, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why that is happening. Yeah, so you get these these different systems. I think um, the one that you're referring to, so it has a pulsar and it has a neutron star. And so it'll do what's called precession. And so as the spin axis uh, processes, it kind of it wobbles like a top. You can see the pulsar and so occasionally it'll be you know, toward us, but then, you know, the gravity of the situation is, you know, there's an immense amount of gravity there. 
it will kind of wobble off our line of sight. And so you won't be able to see it. And that and that makes sense, right? Gravity, a gravitational force that comes from anything outside of the system is going to cause precession. Here on Earth, we have the precession of the equinoxes, but we also have the precession of our orbit due to general relativity, and we also have the precession of our orbit due to all the other planets, which are the majority of the other masses in our vicinity. So our orbit is precessing. With a pulsar, you get not just the orbit processes, but also its orbital axis, which, which also happens for Earth. Um, and because we're dealing with large masses at these relatively small distances, these precession effects can be huge. They can be so large that they can knock a neutron star's axial alignment, which happens to either be aligned with us or not aligned with us, either into or out of alignment over time, which which I find crazy, right? Because astronomically, we're used to dealing with these astronomical timescales where things take thousands or tens of thousands or millions of years to change. And here we can see pulsars that on the one hand, you have millisecond pulsars that are super, super stable, right? Some of them you can look away for like a year and you can know whether a billion pulses have passed or a billion and one pulses have passed when you look back because the timing is just that precise. But at the same time, there are other pulsars where if you looked away for a year or a few years, you might find that it had stopped pulsing entirely from your point of view. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot that, you know, we can learn. You can study, you know, sometimes it's hard with these systems to, to study them because sometimes we can predict when we're going to see the pulsar. And usually if we know it really well, we can see, we, we can know that, but sometimes we just won't see the pulsar. And that kind of brings to mind the question of, you know, how many pulsars are we just not seeing because they're, you know, processing away from us or, you know, they're just not facing us. You know, one of the one of the things that I've sort of realized over the last few years is that most of the stars in the universe are not like our sun, right? We've got like 80% or so of the stars in the universe are probably these red dwarfs, these M-class stars, these small, low-mass, low-brightness stars. And that's the majority of stars that are out there. Uh, the sun is more massive than about 95% of the stars in the universe, but in order to go supernova, and a supernova is what we believe you need to produce either a neutron star or a black hole, you need to be born more massive than about eight times the mass of the sun. And that's something that's probably only true for somewhere around 0.1% to 0.2% of all the stars that were ever born. And yet, when you look at our galaxy and you say, oh, well, there's maybe 400 billion stars and most of the high mass stars are probably going to produce neutron stars instead of black holes, that kind of gives you a rough estimate that we should be looking for somewhere between a few hundred million and maybe even a billion neutron stars in our own galaxy. That 
that's really an astronomical number, and that's a much bigger number than the ones we found in our local neighborhood of space if we were to extrapolate that to the entire galaxy. Yeah, exactly. We think that one pulsar is born maybe about every 25 to 50 years. So that may not sound like a lot, but if you consider the entire you know lifetime of the universe or since stars form, that's a lot of pulsars. Yeah, I mean, basically you say, okay, we're going to make one every, I don't know, 25 years. Uh, but then we've had, you know, 12 billion years of the Milky Way galaxy with stars living and dying. And doesn't that sort of mean we're going to have, you know, 500 million pulsars in the Milky Way by now? And that's just real rough back of the envelope stuff. <laughs> and the answer is, yeah, that's that's about the right order of magnitude. That's about what we're probably looking at. So are there plans to either uh, find these missing pulsars that we haven't found so far? Or is there a potential reason why we've only seen the few pulsars that we've seen and these others are just invisible to us right now? Yeah, so there are a lot of ongoing pulsar surveys that basically it's like any other sky survey. So you take a telescope and you basically scan the entire sky to see you know, what you can find. So there are a couple of examples. There's the P-Alpha survey uh, that was at Arecibo that's, that went on. We're still analyzing the data from that. And there is the Green Bank North Celestial Cap survey. And with all of those, we get so much data. And there are a lot of people working on those. But pulsars specifically, uh, so they emit mostly in the radio regime. So there is actually a the, it, the frequency that you observe them with a radio telescope is really indicative of you know kind of how many you're going to find so we don't think that you can really see pulsars below about a hundred megahertz maybe a couple tens of megahertz just because the information is so scattered by the interstellar medium but i believe we can observe them up to probably about five gigahertz so basically in that sweet spot you need to observe in order to to find the most pulsars and i think about one gigahertz is the the ideal spot for just searching for pulsars i think i think that's important i i also want to explain this for our listeners um who might not understand looking in different frequencies right when we talk about light light comes in all of these different wavelengths short wavelength light is higher in energy long wavelength light is lower in energy what we say though is that there's this relationship that the wavelength of your light multiplied by the frequency of your light always has to equal a constant and that constant is the speed of light so if you start talking about higher frequency light higher frequency basically has to mean well let's see if the frequency is higher and frequency times wavelength equals the speed of light, that means your wavelength has to be a smaller value. So high frequency is smaller wavelength, that's higher energy. So what we're saying is, look, you have all this stuff in the interstellar medium. You have gas, you have dust, you have plasma, you have molecules, you have ions, and all of this stuff 
is going to interact with light, but it's going to interact with light of different wavelengths in different ways. So there are sort of these sweet spots for looking where a lot of the galaxy is transparent to this light. And that tends to happen at these longer wavelengths, right? The longer wavelength you are, the less affected by this gas and the dust you tend to be. But the shorter wavelength you are, you tend to be less and less transparent. So when you start looking at these frequency windows that you can look in and see these pulsars, you're basically saying, look, there's all sorts of complicated physics going on in the galaxy. And all of these pulsars, right, the light has to pass through the part of the interstellar medium in our galaxy from where the pulsar is to our eyes in order to get there. We want to look where this pulsar signal comes through cleanly. And that's why you sort of probe these specific frequency ranges in radio light looking for these pulsars and not others. Is that is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, absolutely. So if that's what we're doing, um, are you saying that if we could somehow clean out the interstellar medium, if we could even find like a window in our neighborhood where, oh, you know, there's just not a lot of stuff in the galaxy. There's not a lot of gas or dust or plasma or any of this polluting stuff. Would we be able to see more pulsars in that direction because we'd be able to look in sort of frequency ranges where we can't look typically? Yeah, so if so a lot of the the pulsars are sometimes we can't see them definitely because of the interstellar medium. So if we had something clean that the pulse could just go through, then I think yeah, I think you're right. I think we would see see more pulsars because there wasn't any stuff between us and the pulsar. So when we when we observe at different frequencies, right? What what do these different frequencies teach us? Do they just give us the opportunity to see the pulsar in sort of different shades of light? And does that sort of like help us sort of subtract out the interstellar medium, the stuff in between us and the pulsar? Or does observing in these different frequency bands actually enable us to learn something about the pulsar's nature that we couldn't learn just by looking at it in one particular frequency? Yeah, so kind of both. Uh, one concept that, that I personally work a lot with is radio, radius to frequency mapping. And so essentially, the higher you go in frequency, the closer you can look to the pulsar's surface. So I'm working on a project right now looking at trying to map what the emission of a pulsar looks like kind of from basically throughout the entire frequency range that we can go through. So for instance, if we have, you know, two gigahertz or, or three gigahertz um, signals or observations, we can look closer to the star. And if we look at observations at, you know, two gigahertz and one and kind of go through that entire spectral range, then we can observe what's going on with the pulsar from basically as close as we can get to the surface to high up in the emission cone. So are you saying that if we start going to higher frequencies, which are shorter wavelengths, that that means we can actually probe the pulsar to a higher precision to smaller distances than we can if we start looking at these lower frequencies? 
Yes. Um, there is a whole lot of stuff with the interstellar medium and it definitely depends. But for some, yes, if we're doing radius to frequency mapping, uh, in some cases we can get close to the star and just kind of see what's going on there. Right. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say anything to like make it like one set of astronomy is better than any other set of astronomy. But if you're someone who's interested in the physics of the interstellar medium, you're probably not going to want the pulsar signal that you want. And if you're someone who's interested in the physics of pulsars, you're not going to want the imprint of the interstellar medium on the pulsar signal, right? We have this old saying that one astronomer's noise is another astronomer's data. And I think this is part of what a lot of people, I think even a lot of professionals don't appreciate about having people who specialize and get excited by so many different aspects of astronomy. Because you're teaching us that we can look at this data set and we can learn about the pulsars that are out there in the universe. Someone else could look at that same data set and say, no, the pulsars aren't the interesting thing. Let's learn about the interstellar medium. And thinking about it from this perspective really gives me an appreciation of how much we can actually learn about the universe, about light that gets emitted at the source, about everything that happens to light along the way as it journeys to our eyes and everything that it passes through. And then it arrives and we basically have the entire history of the universe from when that light was emitted to when it was absorbed imprinted in that light. And if you're interested in studying any aspect of that universe, everyone can take advantage of this same data set. And that sort of, for me, emphasizes the importance of not only collecting as high quality data as we can possibly collect, but of having all these different specialists in these different subfields so that because no one person can can be a, a complete master expert in all of these different aspects. But if you study your aspect and someone else studies their aspect and we put all this information together, then collectively we can learn so much more about the universe as it actually is. Yeah, exactly. Even within small groups, uh, I'm involved in the Nanograv collaboration, which is the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves. And so what we do is we time pulsars. So we look at a bunch of millisecond pulsars and we model exactly when their signal is going to get to us. And we correct for all these things uh, with our models. And the whole point, you know, it's it's to detect, hopefully detect nanohertz gravitational waves. And there's so much auxiliary science that can go on with that. Uh, for instance, I look at the polarization. You can do things with dark matter. You can look at the mass of neutron stars. You can test theories of gravity. So just those times of arrival of the pulsars can give you so much information, even just within this small little part of pulsars, you can learn so many things. So you've uh, you've just opened an enormous can of worms, and I'm pretty sure this is going <laughs> to yeah. take up the rest of our time here. But I want to dive into yeah. this can of worms because because I think it's fascinating, and also because I think it really illustrates just what a rich field of study pulsars are. So you mentioned nanograv and the idea 
of nanograv is something that's always appealed to me because you know you can say okay look pulsars are these complicated things right somehow you've got this core of neutrons where the inner 90 percent is condensed neutrons just like one giant atomic nucleus except even denser right if you compared the density of say a uranium nucleus to the density of a neutron star's interior the neutron star is denser the neutron star has to be denser because all of those neutrons are bound together so tightly that they don't decay. And it's only gravity, this binding force of gravity, that keeps the neutrons from decaying into the lighter mass protons because being bound in a ball of neutrons is actually more energetically stable. But as you go out to the edge of the neutron star, you'll find there's a layer of protons, neutrons, and other, you know, mixed nuclei, uh, along with electrons that are there. You don't just have neutral particles. So when you have this neutron star with its little coating of charged particles and it spins super close to the speed of light, as far as I know, this is where we get the strongest magnetic fields in the universe, right? So you can say, well, here on Earth, our planet has a magnetic field and its strength is about one gauss. And then you say, okay, well, I can make permanent magnets and the strength of the strongest iron permanent magnets are somewhere between one and two tesla where a tesla is 10,000 gauss so you say okay yeah we can have stronger magnets than the earth's magnetic field and that makes sense and then you say okay well we're going to make these electromagnets and we're going to make them super conducting and we're going to cool them with superfluid helium and we're going to take these composites and try to reach the highest magnetic fields we can and at places like the national high magnetic field laboratory in tallahassee florida you can get close to a hundred tesla and then you start talking about neutron stars and you say, okay, well, you have these spinning neutron stars and they're spinning close to the speed of light and they got these charged particles all on their surface and they're spinning. And how strong are the magnetic fields that you get? And the answer is somewhere around 100 billion Tesla, somewhere around 10 to the 11 Tesla or about 10 to the 15, a quadrillion Gauss, 10 to the 15 times as strong as Earth's magnetic field. And for me, that's just a sort of wow of an astrophysical laboratory. Like we're never going to reach anything approaching that on Earth. But these places naturally exist in the universe and they give us the opportunity to study things like never before. Um, you know, before before I get into nanograv and how that works, uh, is there anything you want to add about pulsar magnetic fields and sort of the wow factor of how strong they are? Yeah, so pulsar magnetic fields are crazy. They're um, about a trillion times the magnetic field on Earth. And at, at the distance of the moon, some would wipe out all of the data or a neutron star would wipe out all of the data on all of the credit cards on Earth. So it's nuts. And then you have these magnetars, which are a thousand times more magnetized than these neutron stars. And it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I love it. I love the fact that these extreme objects not only exist in the universe, but they are so thoroughly ubiquitous. So you have these basically extraordinarily strong magnets that are also incredibly dense masses 
traveling through the universe. They are also, many of them, these almost perfect clocks, some of which are accurate to, you know, 16 or 17 significant figures, which means you can, you can literally watch something for a few years, look away for a decade, look back and see that this thing is ticking exactly as it should. You could know exactly how many pulses have passed down to like microsecond accuracy or so. Um, that's, that's a remarkable and incredible feat to me. But at the same time, uh, these things themselves are also bending the space around them. And they're also being subject to whatever effects are passing through this bent space. One of the things that should be out there are these ripples in space, these gravitational waves. Some of them might be left over from the Big Bang. Some of them are probably arising from the most massive black hole systems we have in the universe. Things like hundred million solar masses, billions, tens of billions of solar masses. Sometimes these objects are gonna orbit each other. Sometimes you're gonna have two ultra-massive black holes in the same system that will in-spiral and merge. And when you do, you're going to get these gravitational waves, these really, really long wavelength, really, really low frequency because of the, you know, extreme masses that we have, gravitational waves. Um, and these millisecond pulsars, these pulsars, if you have a large enough network of them and you monitor how does this pulsar timing change over time correlated between these different pulsars, uh, you actually have a chance of detecting either direct, I would say indirectly detecting the presence of these either gravitational waves that were left over from the earliest stages of the hot Big Bang, or these gravitational waves that are imprinted from these ultra-massive binary black holes in the universe. That nanograv, actually, from pulsar timing and other networks like it, are giving us the opportunity to see gravitational waves that are direct detectors, like LIGO, Virgo, and upcoming LISA won't have a chance to see. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the with gravitational waves, like you were talking about different frequencies, um, things occur at different frequencies. So different, gravi different sources of gravitational waves will produce gravitational waves at a, at a different frequency. So you had the, the frequency and the wavelength that we were talking about earlier. So things like ground-based interferometers like LIGO will be sensitive to objects with uh, frequencies from neutron star mergers and black holes. And then you have space-based interferometers. Uh, LISA is actually going up in a few years that will be sensitive to things like stellar mass compact binaries and supermassive black hole mergers. So different size objects will have different accelerations, different masses, and so they'll give off these different gravitational waves. Uh, what we're really interested in is the pulsar timing rays. So we can detect the supermassive black hole binaries and mergers and, like you were saying, these primordial gravitational waves. So different instruments are sensitive to all of these different um, all of these different objects. And so that's the with you know, some might say, you know, we have LIGO to detect gravitational waves, you know, why do we need pulsar timing arrays? But 
the answer is to detect different systems. Yeah, to me, that's just like saying like, oh, we already have optical telescopes, so why do we need an x-ray telescope or why do we need a radio telescope? Because the answer is in different wavelengths of light, you can see different objects that are either brighter or fainter in various wavelengths of light. Well, the same thing is true for gravitational waves. Gravitational waves come in different frequencies and different wavelengths. And so if you look with pulsars, you're sensitive to these very long wavelength gravitational waves. So you could see these ultra massive black holes where maybe um, the light travel time of a photon across the black hole is a day or more. So you can't see something that occurs on something on a time scale that's less than a day. And it only takes a few milliseconds for LIGO to reflect light up and down between its mirrors down its laser arms a few thousand times. So LIGO isn't going to see things that take a day to happen. LIGO is going to see things that take milliseconds or less to happen. Um, same thing with Lisa. Lisa, they're going to be farther apart, the laser arms are, but that's really only going to get you up into, I think, the kilohertz range. Um, and so if you want to see like nanograph for these nanohertz things, you really have to go like, okay, we, we need to go to these long baselines. And that starts thinking about like, okay, what about... What about these black holes that we couldn't see with LISA or LIGO? What about the leftover gravitational waves that came from the end of inflation? What could we possibly be sensitive to? It's really just like building a new type of telescope to detect higher energy or higher frequency or lower energy or, lo you know, to detect the different types of light that are out there. We're doing this for gravitational waves, too. Yeah, exactly what we're doing, so we have pulsars scattered around the sky, and that's that's really important for, for detecting these gravitational waves, but essentially what we're doing by doing that is creating a galaxy-sized gravitational wave detector. Yeah, and that's, and that's absolutely amazing, right? Because if the bigger your baseline is, the bigger your baseline arms are, the more sensitive you can be to things that are happening on, on those larger scales. And so if you have bigger laser arms, you would be able to say, okay, like if we're not limited by the size of Earth, we could detect different frequencies of gravitational waves. So you have something like LISA, where you're going to have these three spacecraft in a trailing Earth orbit that's going to give you a longer baseline. There's been a proposal for something called Big Bang Observer, where they would put um, different LISA-like constellations at different points in Earth orbit. So you can get something that would be basically the size of Earth's circumference of its orbit around the sun. That would give you even bigger stuff. Well, what's even bigger? Imagine you've got these networks of pulsars all over the galaxy, thousands and thousands of light years separating them. If you can observe them, you've basically made your own telescope out of these natural objects that are already there. And that that's like that's sort of the ultimate in uh, getting the most bang for your buck. If you can observe these astronomical objects precisely from here on Earth, it's like you've built a gravitational wave detector the size of the Milky Way or the size of a substantial fraction of the Milky Way. Exactly. 
So something you also mentioned is you talked about the polarization of light from these pulsars, really from any astronomical object that emits light, because radio light is still light. Um, there are two ways you can observe it. You can just observe the regular light or you can observe the polarization of light. And to me, this is basically like doubling your data set. You're basically getting two data sets for the price of one. Because if I just made light, if I just produced light and there weren't anything special about the light I was producing, like let's just say I had, I had some hot matter that I heated up and it emitted light, uh, all of that light right? It's an electromagnetic wave, so it makes in-phase perpendicular electric and magnetic fields that oscillate. That's, that's light. It's an electromagnetic wave. And, uh, you know, if you ever took electromagnetism from me, I made you derive that electromagnetic waves with no sources, no charges, and no currents will produce a wave that moves at a certain speed, which you can show is the speed of light um, in vacuum. So that's what light is. It's this electromagnetic wave. But what some light can be is polarized, which is to say its electric and magnetic fields will be oriented in a particular way as opposed to just randomly. And you can get light that's either fully or partially polarized. What I find fascinating is if you want to polarize light, one of the best ways you can do it is you can have light interacting with matter that's aligned in a strong magnetic field. That's one of the best ways to polarize light. Um, something else that can happen, and this does happen around pulsars, is even when there's no matter around them, you can get something called vacuum birefringence, where the magnetic fields are so strong that your light can become polarized even without matter to scatter off of. That just the fact that you have these super strong magnetic fields and the physics of quantum field theory tells you this light will get polarized. When you're talking about the light coming from pulsars, you have to take all of these factors together. Um, but you do that and you find, whoa, light from pulsars is not just polarized, but often it comes in and it's extremely polarized, like 80, 90% or even more of it is strongly polarized. Um, there's a whole lot to talk about as far as pulsar light polarization goes. Uh, so I'll just kind of leave it open-ended to you. Um, what would you like people to know about pulsar light and polarization? And how does that differ from what we learn just looking at it in the normal light without paying attention to polarization? Yeah, so thank you for that introduction on polarization. Um, so one thing kind of in general that all pulsars have is what's called an average profile. So if you think of like a lighthouse, as it goes past review, we'll see the beam once, and then it'll go out of review. And so if you look at the intensity of that beam over time, you'll build something. So if you map um, time on your x-axis or phase and then energy, that you get different amounts of intensity over the, the beam. And so 
that's called the pulsar average profile and all of those are different and so you have the pulsar beam and you also have you know you have magnetic fields in that beam and you have you know all this crazy stuff going on and so along with that average profile you'll also get um assuming you observe the right way you'll also get the linear polarization profile and the circular polarization profile so they're basically all different for all for pulsars um they're there's a lot that we don't know about millisecond pulsars especially because their magnetic fields are kind of crazy because of the spin-up but the average degree of linear polarization of a pulsar is about 20 percent and for circular it's about 10 percent so individual pulsars can be up to 10 percent polarized but that's just to say that you know you don't have a specific you know they all probably get polarized in in the same way but you don't have a specific polarization pattern that a pulsar you know admits they can look crazy they can you know, some pulses just look like a Gaussian, and so just basically one one bump. You can have up to five bumps, you know, in the average profile. And so, you know, pulsar polarization can tell us a lot about the magnetic field of a pulsar. Yeah, one of the things that uh, that I got very excited when I heard uh, sort of made the rounds in a news release recently was uh, Faraday rotation, right? If you saw the the new image of the black hole around um, that we directly image with the Event Horizon Telescope, it includes polarization data. Um, and so instead of this donut-like shape with blobs, you actually have this crawler-like shape where it's like a donut with these sweeping lines that move from the outside in on it. And that's because the light from this the Event Horizon Telescope, the radio light coming from around the black hole is partially polarized and the way you measure this polarization is you sort of say okay if i look at all this light and there were no magnetic field there it would sort of come in with um its electric and magnetic fields oriented randomly and in this particular set of orientations and if you find preferred orientations for the electric and magnetic field then how preferred one orientation is over the other or how strongly i guess you know polarized it is uh that's going to tell you like hey what's going on with the electric and magnetic fields in this object in in this environment um the thing is for the black hole that we're looking at it's so big that it's light travel time across its center is about a light day we're talking you know something where um if you would take pluto's orbit around the sun and multiply that by about a factor of six make it like six times the diameter that's about the size of the event horizon of the black hole that we imaged a pulsar by comparison uh, it would take something like, I want to say, around 100 billion to a trillion pulsars, all lined end-to-end, -to, -end, to make that same thing. Now, when we think about magnets, we usually think about dipole magnets, like bar magnets, or like the Earth has a north magnetic pole and a south magnetic pole, and it looks just like, you know, like there's two poles, and you connect them, and that's a magnetic field. 
But when we looked at the pulsars in detail, and I think this is a relatively new find by the NICER mission aboard the International Space Station, I think it only came out in the last two years, um, they actually found that pulsars, neutron stars in general, are probably not dipoles. That it looks like they have multiple spots where magnetic field lines come out of and go into this collapsed object. And at the very least, there are at least three to five like places where the magnetic field either enters or exits the star. That it's not this north-south pole magnet, but it's a much more complicated structure. Um, for something that's only 10 to 15 kilometers across, I, I've always found that fascinating. That something where the magnetic field is trillions of times stronger than it is around, say, a black hole, even though it's like, you know, a trillion times smaller or so, um, it's still chaotic. It's still not this simple magnet. Um, that That's something that, that really surprised me. Did that surprise you, or had you suspected that was going to be the case all along? Yeah, so what the NYSER team is finding is really, really interesting because we've never probed, you know, down to the neutron star surface. And there's just so much that we don't know about neutron stars. So we think that, you know, it has a super, you know, they're super fluid in the interior, obviously, um, you know, everything is packed really tight, but there's a lot that we don't know. We, there, we only speculate on exactly, you know, what makes the radiation, but we don't know what's deep down inside. And so we try to come up with these equations of state to try to figure out, you know, what exactly is inside of, of the pulsar, but you know, we, we don't know. And, you know, I think it, I, I love that the NYSER team is looking at the surface because, you know, it's one step closer to figuring out, you know, how pulsars do what they do. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that I really like about pulsars, and I, I sort of say this thinking about the millisecond pulsars, is how stable they are and how much they remain the same over time. But every once in a while, uh, in addition to the gradual spin up or spin down that pulsars can do, uh, pulsars will also uh, glitch. And I've always looked at a glitch in what I think is a very naive way, and I'm kind of excited to get to share that naive view of pulsar glitches with you so you can, uh, you know teach me something because when i when i think about a pulsar i think about it the way i think of any spinning object like the earth which is to say it naturally wants to reach its most stable configuration and most stable configuration for a spinning object is going to be with the mass arranged so that it's close to the central axis of rotation. It's as close to it as possible. So what does it want to do? It wants to move all the densest material both towards the core from gravity and towards its spin axis because of, you know, of angular momentum and buoyancy. So you're going to try to collapse the mass. If you have a denser part, it's going to try to move it towards the central axis and the center of the pulsar. Um, and when this happens, when you get a significant amount of mass that moves like this, 
just like when you have that in on Earth, you get an earthquake and Earth's rotation will speed up slightly. You get that in pulsars and you get the equivalent of a massive stellar remnant quake that rearranges the moment of inertia, rearranges the mass inside of it. And that causes it to not just slightly change the rate at which it's spinning, but it causes it to glitch where maybe you don't get a pulse where you should have, or your pulses are offset, or you get an extra pulse where you shouldn't. Um, and this pulsar glitch um, is actually like the star sort of rearranging its mass inside, or it's a symptom of the star rearranging its mass inside. Uh, but afterwards, the new pulsar, right? The post-quake pulsar, it's like it's related to the original pulsar, but it also behaves like kind of an entirely new system. It has maybe a different period, slightly different properties, and things you observed about it pre-glitch are not necessarily the things you're going to see about it post-glitch. Um, how close is that to what we actually think is going on? Yeah, that definitely sounds right. Um, and kind of going back to what I was saying about, you know, the equations of state, which basically, you know, describes the mechanics of the matter inside by looking at glitches and by looking at, you know, how frequently they happen. And then, you know, the pulsar afterward, we can definitely study, you know, what's going on with the pulsar and kind of get a better handle um, on that. There are also anti-glitches where they go the opposite way. So instead of like spinning up and then spinning back down, they go the other way. But not a whole lot is known about that. But anyway, they're, they're but, interesting. But we've seen a few, right? We've seen a few of these right. anti-glitches. And that's, uh, that's a relatively recent discovery, isn't it? Like, as far as I know, there really weren't any of these like 20 years ago, even though we discovered pulsars back in, uh, I believe, the 1960s. Um, we didn't really start to see these anti-glitches until the last couple of decades. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the I think the, the latest paper came out in around 2015, 2014, 2015, that looks at these anti-glitches. So I think we've known about glitches for a while in pulsars, but these weird anti-glitches uh, are fairly new. Yeah, so it sounds like there's a whole lot more to still discover about them. I'm, I'm a little curious. Um, you know, you have all these interesting aspects of pulsars. You have what's going on at their surfaces that we're starting to be able to measure. What's going on underneath their surfaces where we really have to, like, use what we know about theories and degenerate matter. Um, is it neutrons all the way down or are is there like a quark gluon plasma at the center of these neutron stars? How strong can these magnetic fields get? Will these millisecond pulsars reach a point in their evolution where they stop pulsing? Um, you know, there are all sorts of questions that I have, and don't feel bad if you don't know the answer to any of them, because I don't know that any of them actually have answers. Um, but I am curious for you, what are the big questions and puzzles that you look at in the field of pulsars? Um, what are the big things you want to know about pulsars? And then as a follow-up, and if you say, okay, um, w whether we know these things or not, here are some things that I think we can use pulsars 
to teach us about the greater universe. Like what are the big things you want to know about pulsars and what are the big things you want to use pulsars to teach us about the universe? Yeah, so I think that kind of the big thing being in nanograv is I would love to see gravitational waves detected with, using pulsar timing. I think that'd be that'd be really great and we're getting closer as we have more and more data. But I think there's a quote that uh, we know how pulsars pulse, we don't know how they shine. And so there's so much about the emission process that we don't know. So we think that inside that emission beam, that there is a core beam and then this double cone. So you have an inner cone, you have an outer cone. And so the number of components in the average profile will tell you kind of where your sight line goes. It's kind of hard to do this without visuals, but uh, it'll kind of tell you where you're looking. And so, for instance, if you have five components, then you'll be seeing through the outer cone, inner, core, inner, and then the outer cone. And so you get all these weird components in the average profile. And sometimes you'll have these, um, you know, where you don't have the beam. What we've been seeing is these little micro components. And so you'll have a little bit of emission that's really off the pulsar beam. And so I think that those are really interesting. And so just in terms of what I would like to see, you know, discovered using discovered about pulsars is why, you know, how the emission mechanism really works. And in my lifetime, I would also like to see, I would also like to figure out the reason behind pulsar switches. You know, I, I think that's a very uh, worthy and ambitious set of tasks. Like, okay, I just want to detect gravitational waves with pulsars, and I want to know why they emit light the way they emit light, and also I want to know what's responsible in these presumably interiors of these collapsed <laughs> objects to trigger these glitches. That That's all, right? We've got some brilliant people in the field who are working really hard, so I, I believe in the field. Hey, you know, look, I, I think in any field, you have to be ambitious enough to take on the big problems, to take on the big difficult problems. I like to see people uh, with big ambitious eyes saying like, hey, don't tell me these problems are too hard to solve. Tell me to go work as hard as I can on solving them, and I'm going to get as far as I can get us, and I'm going to work with other people in the field so that we can all get as far as we can get that's that's sort of the enterprise of science in a nutshell to me yeah exactly so um with all of that said i think it's really fascinating to sort of look at where we are with pulsars today and by the way we get one image that i can upload with every podcast so if you have an image in mind that illustrates this two cone thing you were telling me about, uh, let me know and I'll post it with the podcast so that all of our uh, listeners can uh, also look on and sort of get a visual for what you're talking about. Great. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, so we've got all this stuff that we know about pulsars and we've got this light coming from them and we also have this polarization coming from them. Based on what we know today, if you could somehow cut open a pulsar and take a cross-section of it, what would we expect to find inside of it? Like how on Earth, okay, you could say, okay, well, we have the atmosphere, and then we have the oceans, and then we have the crust, and the mantle, and the outer core, and the inner core. What would it look like if you could slice a pulsar in half, 
uh, and sort of go uh, from its outer, I, I don't want to call it an atmosphere because I feel like that's the wrong term, but I'll say, what would you see uh, from the external environment of the pulsar as you went through the various layers down to whatever you might find inside with full realization that we don't know for certain what's inside these pulsars, particularly as you get close to the center. Yeah. Um, so in the pulsar, I guess, atmosphere emission cone, especially in millisecond pulsars, you would find all of these crazy magnetic field lines. You would find, you know, these electrons being accelerated and producing all of this radiation. And then kind of as you go toward the center, you would find the outer crust and there's an inner crust. And then what we know from from studying, you know, the glitches and, and other things is that underneath that inner crust is probably superfluid neutrons and superfluid protons. Uh, it also electrons. So you've got this this weird soup of superfluid that is there. And then at the center, you have a core and we have no idea what's going on with the core. So we don't know whether it's a solid ball of neutrons or a quark gluon plasma or whether there are strange quarks in there or even charm quarks in there or whether there is some uh, degenerate state of matter that exists under higher more extreme conditions than we've been able to create uh, at places like a relativistic heavy ion collider or at the Large Hadron Collider, that, that what you're saying is these are states of matter so exotic and so extreme that we have never been able to experimentally probe them. Yeah, that is correct. You definitely get into the solid state physics. You know, you go from astronomy and plasma physics and then the inside, it's, you know, all about modeling and you know solid state physics just to figure out exactly what kind of matter could exist under those super extreme conditions yeah which is sort of crazy to me because it means we can have things that we normally think of as being in these ultra controlled systems things like fermi surfaces and spin ice and you're saying like look like these quantum systems we're dealing with are so dense and energetic and under such extreme pressures and temperatures that there that many of these things that we normally only think about in the context of these extreme matter systems they they're probably all at play and maybe even more of them than we know about are in play inside these neutron star interiors yeah exactly we we just have no idea because it's nothing like we can model on earth yeah, you would you would hope that there would be some sort of like, oh, well, I could just do these theoretical physics calculations. Um, but but this isn't really something that's easy to do when I, I put easy in air quotes here. Like you could say like, oh, I want to calculate all the interactions that are possible between an electron and a proton. Right. That's that's some standard model physics that you can do. But when you get into these very dense environments where you have complicated systems interacting with one another and many particles all kind of overlapping in the same place, uh, those calculations, they're not going to give you accurate answers anymore, are they? Exactly. I, I don't like that. I mean, I, I it's not like I dispute it, but I don't want that to be the case. I, part of the reason that I like 
astrophysics and particle physics is when you can sort of have a clean environment where you're not going to have a whole bunch of uh, muck getting into your signal where you know what you're calculating and you know what to expect and you can make a clean prediction and this is really an environment that's so messy that i don't know of any clean predictions that can come out of it yeah exactly well that sounds like this is a, a very rich field that is going to keep you and many others busy uh through the completion of your phd and well beyond yeah absolutely so with all of that said, um, are there any thoughts that you have that you would like to share with our listeners, whether that's about Pulsar's graduate school or anything else you can imagine? Yeah, so I just want to share a couple of fun facts about Pulsar's, if that's okay. Do it. Um, so, so, so Pulsar's are super weird and, you know, they do weird things like nulling so they just they'll turn off and then we won't see emission and then they'll just turn back on like nothing ever happened and we're not exactly sure why and it's super weird um another one is that i'm just gonna spew off facts if that's okay <laughs> um, another is that there is a type of pulsar called a black widow that it so a black widow um they eat their companions and so that's exactly what a black widow does it avoids its companion with radiation. So it basically consumes its companion. Uh, another fact that a lot of people don't know is that the first exoplanet ever discovered was around a pulsar. It was a couple of people that did pulsar time actually and discovered these planets around pulsars, but I, I don't think a lot of people even in the exoplanet community know that. And people also probably don't know that there's a 1,000 carat diamond planet going around a pulsar that orbits at about every two hours. Uh, it's actually the core of a white dwarf. And so it is the companion of a millisecond pulsar. It goes around about it every two hours. It is 400 light years away, though, so it is pretty far. Um, and I think that... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. These are a lot of fun facts because uh, <laughs> now there's there's a whole bunch I want to follow up with about them. Uh because when, when you start talking about environments like this and systems like this, it makes me start to wonder like, hey, if you have pulsars that are turning on and off and this is not due to precession, right, which which is why some pulsars do turn on and off because their, their sort of lighthouse effect processes out of our line of sight and then back into our line of sight. But we also have pulsars where, you know, we know they have companions. Are the pulsars that we see, uh, do they require matter accreting from a companion or being raining onto it from a companion in order to pulse? And if there's an sort of intermission or a halt to that infalling matter, will the pulsar stop pulsing too? Uh, it's possible it could just you know create it could spin up and it could you know turn away from us but there's a lot that you know obviously we don't know i mean it sounds like there are so many possibilities here for what could be going on that um you know i i hesitate to ask you to speculate but what else could it be if not that uh i'm not sure it could be could be anything okay okay 
Um, the uh, the pulsar exoplanet. I think a lot of people would expect that the environment around pulsars would be so uh, intense and wild that maybe you wouldn't be able to have a planet there. And I think if you're looking at like something like, oh well, what about a planet like Mars? Like Mars, Mars, I think would be pretty well fried by something like a like a planet like a pulsar. But I don't think there's any reason why a planet like Mercury wouldn't be able to exist or a planet made of dense materials like perhaps a stripped core of a Jupiter-like planet couldn't hang out there. Or like you said, a, a thousand carat planet, which I'm sure is a lowball estimate of the number of carats that would be in the carbon-oxygen core of a former white dwarf. Um, I think like you can have some real extreme astrophysical objects that persist around pulsars for an extremely long time. Uh, and one of the wonderful things about pulsars is because their timing is so precise, you can actually basically do an extreme version of the radial velocity or stellar wobble method that you'd use for exoplanets with pulsars and get such better timing data that you can start to detect orbits that even something like the Kepler mission or the TESS mission, even if you had the ideal alignment, wouldn't be able to detect. Exactly. Pulsar timing is, is so precise that there, you know, we can detect little planets around systems. Yeah, I think are the lowest mass planets we've ever detected, the lowest mass exoplanets we've ever detected, do they still all come from pulsars? I'm not sure about that. But some of them do. Some of the lowest mass ones come from pulsars. Right. Okay. Well, we can confidently state that. Um, <laughs> I want to let you get back to it. You have more pulsar facts to share with us. Oh, I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> so another fun thing, I actually, um, that this is one of my favorite pulsar facts is that pulsar B1909 minus 3744. That's just the, the phone number of the pulsar and it, you know, denotes, uh, its location in the sky has an orbital radius of 569,000 kilometers. So twice the distance to the moon around a white dwarf companion. And the difference between the semi-major axis and the semi-minor axis is 3.7 microns. So it's 1 20th of a human hair. That's the deviation from a perfect circle. And this is the most astronomically perfect circle we have ever measured. Now, that I think is pretty cool. And an extra fact that I think is cool about that is previously the most perfect circle we'd ever measured was the surface of a pulsar. That the surface of a pulsar was before that the most perfect circle we knew, and now we have a more perfect one, which is the orbital circle that a pulsar makes. Exactly. It's it's crazy. I mean, this is, this is basically how illustrative it is of... Uh, of what gravity can do when you shed your excess, uh, how should I say this? Okay, I want to say multipole moments, but I don't want to confuse everybody. So I think I've already said it, I've already confused everybody. But basically, you have like this, you know, if 
if you put things in their lowest energy configuration, you could have a perfectly circular orbit. Uh, if all you had was like two masses orbiting their mutual center of mass, they would make perfect circles over and over forever once they sort of radiated any initial imperfections they started with away. And this neutron star white dwarf system you're talking about that that orbits at you know pretty close to each other uh i would imagine because of this closeness because of the tidal forces they exert on one another that they have time to radiate all this excess angular momentum away so that all they have are their mutual spins and orbits gone to the most perfect circle they could form it makes me sort of curious as to Will we find other systems of maybe two pulsars or maybe two white dwarf stars or two other compact objects uh, that make even more perfect circles? And what will that look like? How, how perfect can we actually get uh, but 3.7 microns between the long axis and short axis of something that's around 600,000 kilometers wide, about one and a half to two times the earth moon distance that's that's pretty good 3.7 microns at more than the earth moon distance like that's basically saying hey that apollo mission manual that those apollo astronauts left on the moon if you took one one thousandth of a period on that manual that's the difference between the long axis of the circle and the small axis of the circle that this pulsar and white dwarf trace out. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's a pretty crazy system. Yeah, you, you sound impressed at any rate. I, I <laughs> certainly am. Yeah, definitely. So what would you say to someone who was thinking about studying pulsars, but also found some other things interesting. Like what would be the pulsar sales pitch that you would give them to say, hey, this stuff is really exciting. And if you want to learn more about the universe, here's why you should study pulsars. Yeah. So I guess my favorite thing about pulsars personally is all the weird things that they do. So the knowing and the, the glitches and all of that stuff. And we still don't know exactly why that happens. And so studying that can be really interesting. But again, like I was saying with nanograv, there's so much that you can learn about different areas of physics. So you can learn more about solid state physics by, you know, looking at these nicer observations. You can look at the mass of, you can probe the mass of the neutron star. There was a study done by, um, I think, Dr. Thankful Cromarty in nanograv probing, you know, looking at the times of arrival of this pulsar and got the mass from it. And so it was the heaviest neutron star, you know, we've ever looked at. And so we can also probe dark matter. We can do different things with gravity. There's a system that consists of, it's called the triple system that has one pulsar and I think it's two white dwarfs around it. And so we can really probe Einstein's uh, strong equivalence principle. And we could just look at the gravity around that by looking at the, the pulsar times of arrival and modeling, you know, everything that's around it. And we can study gravity from that. So it's just such a rich area of study and it connects so many things, you know, the interstellar medium as well, you know, modeling the pulsar signals through that can really tell us things about the interstellar medium. So 
it's just such a rich area of study. And so it relates to kind of all areas of, of astronomy. And so there's so many things that you can do with pulsars. You know, one thing that that fascinates me that we didn't even talk about is what the limit of pulsars and neutron stars is, because we you, you talked about the most massive neutron star we've ever discovered, and it comes in at right about 2.2 solar masses. Um, and then beyond that, if you want to look at the next heaviest things we found, uh, they don't look like they're neutron stars. These were things we found that resulted from the mergers of two neutron stars that were detected by LIGO. Uh, one of them, uh, you had two pulsars or two neutron stars whose mass added up to about three, a little over three solar masses. And when we formed that, it went direct to a black hole. We got a black hole immediately with nothing else coming out of it. But the other merger we had, the combined mass was about two and three quarters solar masses. And what we saw was very interesting. It seemed to form a neutron star for a few, maybe 200, 300, 400 milliseconds, and then it collapsed to a black hole. Um, and so what we're sort of exploring, and we're just sort of dancing around it right now, is there is a transition point where below a certain mass, you're going to form neutron stars. Above a certain mass, you're always going to form black holes. And then there's sort of this intermediate range where dependent on what the spin of your object is and some other properties, you might have a neutron star, you might get a black hole, or you might get a neutron star that transitions in short order to becoming a black hole. So I think this question of how heavy can neutron stars get and how light can black holes get, they, they seem to be very closely related. And this is like frontier cutting edge science that, uh, that people like Dr. Cromartie, who you mentioned, and many other people are working on trying to resolve it. I'm, I'm optimistic that another decade or so from now, uh, that this will be a question we know the answer to. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with pulsar timing and with gravitational wave astronomy, we're really getting closer and closer to answering that question. You know, there are there are a few people who uh, really, I would say, are unnecessarily skeptical about what we know about pulsars and neutron stars and these uh, ultra dense state of matter, and. Uh, I don't know if you've had any experience encountering people yet who maybe uh, don't have the confidence in our results about neutron stars like you do. Uh, is there a message you would like to send to any of the doubters out there that maybe we don't know the things that that we assert that we know? Yeah, so especially with pulsar timing and with nanograv, we are so careful with, you know, all of our pulsar timing results and, you know, anything that we put out, we always do a really thorough analysis. We run it through multiple pipelines. We have different people run the simulations and we just really want to be sure that everything that we're doing, that everything that we're producing is solid, that there are no errors in it. And I mean, 
it's everything is done very carefully by multiple people. And so we really check things and do them multiple times to make sure that we are confident in our results. Yeah, and I, I think that's all you can do, right? You you quantify your errors and your uncertainties, and you have many independent teams and many independent data sets that, um, that are working on these problems. And so um, it's not like you are all working from the exact same data. It's not like you're all looking only at the same few objects, and it's not only like... Um, Basically, I think one of the worries I hear from people outside of the field is, oh, it's dominated by groupthink and someone made an assumption and everyone's following that same assumption and it's not necessarily correct. And that's not what I see when I look at this field. That What I see is quite the opposite of that, where you have sort of this diversity of models and ideas and people focusing on different aspects. But what we're finding is... Um, when you look, when you confront it with this big suite of data that's out there, we actually get this, um, I guess, consensus picture. We get this picture of what's happening that seems consistent between all the different observations and all the different models. And you've emphasized in the conversation we've had here what the frontiers are and what we don't know and what we're hoping to learn. But I think it's also worth emphasizing what we do know and what we can confidently state, which is that, hey, these objects exist. Here's how big they are. Here's what their magnetic fields are. Here's what they do to light. Here's what they do to the light that they emit. Here's what's going on in the environments around them. And here's what we see when we observe them at the highest possible precisions that we can observe them. And I think that that all of that points towards a picture that says, we really do know what we're talking about, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And we have all kinds of tools that we that we create. Uh, Jeff Hasboon has led these uh, Pulsar, these data challenge, mock data challenges where you can, there, you know, anybody can do them and you can put, and there's basically a gravitational wave signature hidden within this, um, you know, this, data challenge and so people that's a really good way to test our pipelines we also have you know a pulsar signal simulator which uh jeff hasboon has also been um kind of pioneering with brent shapiro albert dr brent shapiro albert now uh, and so you can we, there are a ton of tools that we've been developing just to make sure that that we check our work and we developed a whole new timing package called pint um which was developed by jing luo our our older data pipelines were named tempo and this one stands for pint is not tempo three so tempo two was our oldest one so um but yeah all kinds of software packages just checking and double checking and triple checking by multiple people so i think the last question i'd like to ask you is i want you to imagine it's 20 years from now and you had a dream machine, whether it was a radio dish or an array of telescopes or um, some sort of uh, set of detectors uh, or some sort of set of things you could measure um, that you could envision would be built that would get you new, unprecedented, superior data. Um, what if that happened, if that happened sometime over the next 20 years and that got built, what is it 
that you would have us build? And what do you believe we would be able to learn from building it, right? If you were dreaming big and saying, here's the holy grail of pulsar instrumentation, what would we build and what would we learn from building it? Yeah, so um, bigger radio dishes. So there are two kind of types of radio instruments that you can have on Earth. You can have uh, a whole bunch of dishes, you can have you know a whole bunch of instruments, or you can have one giant one. So the Arecibo telescope that we unfortunately just lost was one of the most sensitive telescopes on the planet. And so just bigger dish means more collecting area, which means more sensitivity, but then you also have these, um, you know, individual dishes. Um, you know, you have the very large ray, which is which has really long baselines, and so you can do different things with that. Um, and so for pulsar timing, I think I'm not quite sure which one is is better for that. But just you know, getting a gigantic dish and getting more sensitivity. Obviously, there are limits with that, but that would be amazing and we could time pulsars more accurately we could find even more pulsars and it would be great you know one of my one of my favorite things and i say this is favorite because it's one of my uh, very old papers now these days is um if you could get millisecond pulsar timing accurate down to say nanosecond precision which is extremely ambitious but if you could uh, you would actually be able to detect the passage of dark matter substructure these little clumps of dark matter that are theorized to be smaller scale than the galactic size halos we have but they should be embedded within these galactic size halos that we have you would actually be able to detect them and measure their density profiles as they transited across a pulsar's line of sight to us. So over 10, 20 year timetables, uh, we could actually use pulsar timing to detect the existence and characterize the clustering properties of dark matter. And so if you're talking about getting to these high precisions, then maybe this sort of stuff that people are starting to look at again because the the instrumentation is getting there maybe this would actually give us the window into the nature of dark matter that's been eluding us for so long yeah absolutely uh with nanograv we're at uh timing precision of about a microsecond or better so with better dishes and um you know things like that definitely studies for all kinds of auxiliary studies uh dark matter definitely being one of them well, Haley, I want to thank you so much for joining us and spending this time with us. Uh, for those of you who want to find out more about Haley, I would encourage you to follow her. She's on Twitter at hwall16, and uh, she does some fabulous work with the American Astronomical Society and, of course, uh, in pulsar timing as well and polarization with the Nanograv collaboration. Uh, I'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters for making the Starts With a Bang podcast possible. Without your support, this wouldn't exist, so thank you. And I'd like to give a special shout-out to everyone who supports us at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks, 
Briscoe too. Chad Marler, Jeffrey David Maricini, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Thomas Moore, Matt Conroe, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Chris Jakutas, Chris Shaw, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Pavel Zuzelski, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Stefan Berneger, Ahmed Lee Comsi, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Hellbender, Jens Kroger, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojciechuk, Randall Slimak, Sean Foley, Vlad Pashkovsky, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Andrew Jason, Arnulfo Zepeda, Ben Head, Bob Unger, Brainwise, Chris Hilly, Christoph Hip, Chuck Dannon, Dana Bridges, Darren Redfern, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, Glenn McDavid, Hannah Khan, Inga Str James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lalina Menente, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Mike, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Serzakian, Steve Shaber, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Thomas Walgren, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Blair, William Van de Heuvel, and Young S. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. Starts with a Bang.